Venezuela announces that Chavez is back. It's Monday, February 18th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Katie Clark, in for Marco Warman. Celebrations in Caracas, but critics say Chavez's real status is still a mystery. The fiction that they've been working off of is that Chavez has been governing from his hospital bed in Havana. So... This, again, is part of this strange kind of Chavista kabuki theater. Also, Cuba allows a dissident to travel. This is a happy day for Cubans and especially for the blogger and cyber activist, Joanny Sanchez. And later, a long hidden recording of Jimi Hendrix in London comes to light. I do think this is the concert tape find of the century. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download tomorrow. This is The World. I'm Katie Clark, filling in for Marco Warman. There were celebrations in the streets of Caracas today, marking the return of President Hugo Chavez to Venezuela. The Venezuelan government says Chavez flew back from Cuba early this morning. No images of his return were available, though. Chavez left for Cuba over two months ago to undergo emergency cancer surgery. In January, he missed his scheduled swearing-in for a new term in office. Officials say the president is still actively involved in government, despite his health problems. But Venezuela's opposition has been critical of the secrecy surrounding Chavez's illness. Francisco Toro writes a blog he describes as opposition-leaning but not insane. He says the lack of information leaves Venezuelans with little to do but speculate. Even though we're 18 months into uh, the president's battle with cancer, we still don't have a diagnosis, we still don't have a medical report or a prognosis. There's been an amazing level of opacity with this whole topic. The sense that people have had since the science minister, who is also Chavez's son-in-law, spoke the other day about palliative treatment uh, is that we're really in an end-of-life situation. That's never been confirmed. And again, yeah, it is just speculation. And we should note as well that the Venezuelan government is saying that he is on the mend. He is improving, although he has a tube in his throat right now. He'll be speaking soon and, um, you know, he'll be a leader again. I, it, it's a strange kind of uh, Kremlin-style public relations management approach that they've gone to with this problem. I don't think they really expect anybody on their side or on the opposition side to believe that. For example, if you look at the front page of one of the main government-run newspapers today, they're running polling about how his vice president might do in an election in the coming days. Now, it's obvious that they're ramping up for an election in in the very near future. So what has the country been like? How has Venezuela been faring since Chavez left the country in early December? 
Well, the, the country has serious economic and fiscal problems right now. There are mounting shortages of basic commodities. It's almost impossible to get chicken, for instance. It's very difficult to get toilet paper, things like this. There's been a devaluation, and there have been all these economic problems. Why? Because ahead of last October's elections, the government was really working to spend a lot of money to keep people happy ahead of the vote. And they expected to be able to move beyond that quite quickly. But now that they have another election coming up, they've been trying to hold off adjustment. And that's proving the timing of this is very tricky for them as well. And that's quite a change. I mean, just going back a couple of years, say 2009, Venezuela was raking it in, sky-high oil prices, that sort of thing. I mean, this is kind of a surprise for people. Well, oil prices have remained very high. But the problem is that there is no level of oil price that can sustain ever-rising public expenditure. And what we had last year was an immense populist handout ahead of elections. We had, for example, 3 million Chinese-made appliances, things like TV sets and washing machines brought into the country to be distributed at very low cost to the president's supporters. So In a sense, his popularity is not really mysterious from that point of view, but it's also quite clear that that this was never meant to be sustainable or to be sustained over time. We're talking about a country with a 16% of GDP budget deficit right now, which is Greek levels for a huge oil exporter. It's it's quite remarkable. And you mentioned Chavez's vice president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, who's been in charge since Chavez had to leave the country for treatment. No word yet on whether power has been handed back to Chavez, correct? Well, the fiction that they've been working off of is that Chavez has been governing from his hospital bed in Havana. So this, again, is part of this this strange kind of Chavista kabuki theater that, that the country has been put through, where we're supposed to believe that Maduro has never actually been in charge. Um, I don't really know anybody on either side of the aisle that takes that seriously. But again, this is the way that the country is talked to in, in these public statements. And it's it's quite bizarre. So where do things stand right now? I mean, we have a leader who's back now. Nobody seems to know how he's doing. He has a tube in his throat, so he can't really talk very well. Describe where Venezuela is at at this point. Venezuela is awaiting something that everyone can see is about to happen. It's in a state of suspended animation. The opposition is deeply demoralized and demobilized at this point. Venezuela is on the verge of moving into a post-Chavez era that is not a post-Chavista era, a post-Chavez era where you take all of the elements of, of authoritarian government that Chavez has built by solidifying all control of the state under one office and, and passing it on to the next generation. And, and that's always a very sensitive time for, for a country like ours because you just don't know what the next leader is going to be like. Francisco Toro has a blog called Caracas Chronicles. Good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Hugo Chavez isn't the only high-profile person to leave Cuba over the past 24 hours. Cuban dissident blogger Ioanni Sanchez also flew out of Havana. Sanchez had been denied an exit permit by the Cuban government over 20 times in recent years. But Cuban law has now changed, and exit permits are no longer required. 
The government can still deny permission to travel by refusing to issue a passport, but that didn't happen in Sanchez's case, and she's now in Brazil for the start of an 80-day trip around the globe. She'll be stopping in the United States as well. And Ted Henkin is involved in planning the Cuban blogger's American itinerary. Henkin is a professor at Baruch College in New York. And Professor Henkin, how significant is it to you that Yoani Sanchez has been allowed to travel abroad? Around the world in 80 days is what I, yeah. what I like call it and what she's been calling it. Um, I would say that um, it's something to celebrate. It is a hard-won citizen victory, not only for Ioani, but for all Cuban citizens, and especially those over the past years uh, who have been struggling, demanding that, uh, that this ridiculous ban on travel without permission from the state be lifted. And it is a positive step in the right direction that this has happened. Although, we have to recognize that uh, there are still some arbitrary elements in the new law that make this less than a right or a universal right for anyone who's born in Cuba and still a matter of permission. And so although that caveat is important to mention, this is a, a happy day for, for Cubans and uh, one especially for the blogger and cyber activist, Joanny Sanchez. Now, her blog, Generation Y, on it, she's written that on this trip around the world, she hopes to participate in events that will help her grow professionally and civically. And I understand that you are involved in planning for her trip to the U.S. Just tell us a little bit about what she's going to be doing here. Yes, New York University, along with the New School in New York City, have uh, put together a fabulous symposium on March 15th, 16th, and 17th. And we expect that there's going to be a big uh, crush of people who want to hear her for the first time in person. In addition to her visits at universities, she intends to uh, have meetings with Google, Facebook, and Twitter. She's really eager to, uh, to sit down with uh, the people at those companies to share her strategies in using social media. So we're talking about Yoani Sanchez, who is uh, one of Cuba's most prominent dissident bloggers. But I understand that she's not really widely followed in Cuba. Who does follow her? Where are they? Well, she's got followers all around the world. She gets probably 10 million hits on her blog every month. Um, In Cuba, it's really impossible to know. She's definitely well-known and followed, even with the very, very very low uh, level of access to the Internet in Cuba. They use the flash drive as we use the Internet or mobile phones. So a lot of things are shared hand-to-hand kind of manually uh, because they can't be easily sent through the Internet or downloaded on the World Wide Web. So I would say that she's got a a following and she is listened to, not always agreed with, but listened to by, uh, you know, a good 15 percent of the Cuban population that make up this educated, connected elite, both in the government and outside the government. Ted Henkin is professor of Latin American studies at New York's Baruch College. Ted, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Remember the story about the botched Jesus fresco in Spain, the one that's become a tourist attraction after the fresco was ruined by a well-meaning grandmother who thought she could touch it up? Well, here's another story about church art in Spain. In Los Pitalet near Barcelona, a priest invited a couple of graffiti artists to paint inside his church, specifically on the dome ceiling above the main altar. The world's Jerry Haddon has the story. The Santa Eulalia Church is neo-Romanesque in design, with a Catalan twist. Inside, it's austere. The walls are painted nondescript colors. The statues of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the saints are simple. 
To compensate, Father Ramon Bor decided to make the main dome a little different. Y finalmente pues, estuve probando, me encontré en una página web con unos dibujos, estuve viendo grafitis. Eh. In the antechamber of the church on a recent evening, he recalls how he came upon the idea last year surfing the web. He says, I thought, why not graffiti? Even though the press is scandalized by graffiti artists, for me graffiti is just another artistic technique. The result is a spectacular splash of colors, rich blues, bright reds and greens, on the rounded ceiling dominating the main sanctuary. But don't think street art. In fact, the style of the painting is faithfully Romanesque, with static two-dimensional renderings of Saint Eulalia, the Virgin and Baby Jesus, and the congregation. Bor says he sent his two young graffiti artists to school before he let them near the place. I told them my idea, he says. Then I told them they couldn't start until they visited a museum in Barcelona to study the Romanesque style I was interested in. So they went and studied, even took out some books. Only after that could the project come together. One of the two grafiteros was Raúl Sánchez, whose tag or signature for street art is House. House says when Father Bor hired him, he was surprised and nervous and thrilled. El que haya pintado con spray va a reconocer el trazo. Only if you're a graffiti artist can you tell we used aerosol cans to do the work, he says. We tried to conceal that. In the Roman period, spray paint obviously didn't exist. We thought if it's too obvious that we've done it with spray, then we'll be taking away from what Father Bor wanted. Not that house completely conformed. If you look carefully at the figures in the congregation, you see an elderly woman passing a thimble to a young boy. That woman was House's grandmother, who, he says, was miraculously cured of a fatal spinal disease in the 1950s. She was confined to bed, he says, with her sewing table. One day, a man appeared, a stranger, and told her she would get better. She stood up, grabbed her thimble, and collapsed to the floor. And when she woke up, she was cured. The doctors could never explain it. House says the stranger disappeared. Father Bor says he's happy the boys personalized the work, anything to bring more people in. As Pope Benedict XVI has said, art should attract the faithful. His graffiti dome may be working. In a bar just around the corner, a bunch of non-church-going guys enjoy beers after work. They've never seen the dome, but they're impressed by photos. Then, a guy at the far end of the bar speaks up. I've seen it, he says. I saw it in the paper and went to check it out. It's beautiful. Hey, he yells to the others. You guys ought to set your drinks down for once and go on over. It wouldn't hurt you to spend a little time in the house of God. Bingo. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon, L'Hospitalet, Spain. Check out the church's graffiti dome. It's actually pretty nice looking. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Katie Clark. This is The World. In South Africa, a key figure from the country's past is launching a new political party. Mampela Rampele was a leading activist in the anti-apartheid movement. Now she says her new party will challenge the ruling African National Congress in elections next year. The ANC also has its roots in the anti-apartheid struggle. But in recent years, ANC leaders have been criticized for a number of government corruption scandals, growing inequality between the rich and poor, and high levels of youth unemployment. The world's Anders Kelto is in Cape Town, South Africa. And Anders, Dr. Rampele is well known to South Africans, not as well known to Americans. Tell us about her. Well, she's an incredibly accomplished woman. She is a medical doctor. She's a social anthropologist. She served for a while as the highest ranking executive at the University of Cape Town. She's been the managing director of human development at the World Bank, and she's published numerous books. So she's about as close to a modern Renaissance woman as I think you can get. On top of all of that, she has what are referred to in South Africa as struggle credentials. Explain. Yeah, struggle credentials means she was in the struggle. She was fighting hard against the apartheid government. She's been a lifelong activist. And when she was younger, she spent five months in prison for resisting the apartheid government. She was banished to a a remote part of South Africa and she had a long relationship with Steve Biko, who's generally considered the founder or one of the founders of the Black Consciousness Movement. And she was also his lifelong partner, and they had children together as well. He, of course, was murdered by the apartheid government. What I mean, incredible credentials, but what is her political platform? Well, she's been one of the most, if not the most, outspoken critics of the ruling political party and has been a hugely outspoken critic of of the corruption, the inequality, the unemployment, and the lack of basic services that many people see as a failure of the ANC government. It sounds like a war on corruption is sort of the central tenet of their platform, but she hasn't spoken in great specifics about exactly what her party will be all about. And what are the chances of her succeeding with this new political party? I mean, you know, the ANC still has the the, the name recognition, still has the popularity, at least, you know, despite some of the things that we've mentioned that have been going wrong. Most people don't seem to think that she'll make a big splash right away. But a lot of political analysts expect that their party will take a big dent out of the ANC, that you may see a fairly large number of people withdrawing their support for the ANC and putting it behind Dr. Rampele's party. And tell us just a little bit about politics in South Africa. I mean, is it really personality driven? And does she have the personality to really, you know, get the voters on her side? She is a very eloquent speaker. She's a powerful speaker. She's a deeply thoughtful person. But she's also seen as sort of an intellectual. Well, she is an intellectual. And that doesn't always resonate with people here. And it doesn't necessarily translate into political power. I mean, despite the fact that she was raised in a very poor family, she's seen as a very successful, accomplished person, and that sort of puts her out of touch with poor South Africans. A lot of her political opponents will take shots at the fact that she was a managing director of the World Bank and was the vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town as as a way of hacking away at her ability to reach out to poor black South Africans who are still generally distrusting of academics and of intellectuals. So it it does remain to be seen if she can reach those types of voters. But if there's one person that I wouldn't bet against, it's Dr. Rampele. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks, Anders. Thank you.
Our geo quiz today takes us back in time to the Cold War. We're focusing on one particular year, a very tense one for U.S.-Soviet relations. A Korean Airlines commercial flight was shot down by a Soviet interceptor en route to Seoul from New York City. And President Reagan announced his new missile defense program, or as some people called it, Star Wars. This was also the year when a military officer named Stanislav Petrov made the biggest decision of his life, and maybe yours. He was on duty at the Soviet Nuclear Command Center when he saw what appeared to be five American nuclear warheads flash on the screen before him. According to his system, the missiles were headed for the Soviet Union. He should have alerted his superiors, but instead Petrov did nothing. Thankfully so, because it turned out to be a false alarm. This past weekend, Petrov was given a prize for his decision to do nothing. The question for you is, what year was it? We're going right to the answer which is 1983. Nikolai Sokov remembers that year well. He's a senior fellow at the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Nonproliferation. The atmosphere was extremely tense. The United States was supposed to begin deployment of intermediate-range missiles in Europe, which were regarded as extremely dangerous by the Soviet Union. The flight time from West Germany to Moscow was about 10 minutes. A conflict, perhaps a nuclear war, was expected. And I'd say that 1983 was probably the worst year of the period that came to be known as the Second Cold War. And how frequently did these sorts of things happen? I mean, this wasn't the first false alarm. The false alarms during the Cold War were quite a standard thing. Uh, For example, back in the 50s, I believe, American early warning systems like in Turkey reported an attack of Soviet bombers. Mm -hmm. Yes, and later they figured out it was wild geese that were flying south for the winter. Mm -hmm. When you think about the tension during that period, you try to put yourself in Petrov's shoes and try to imagine how you would react uh, to such a warning. The easiest thing to do was, of course, to follow the procedure. I'm quite certain that Petrov fully understood that he was violating the procedure. He knew in advance that he might actually suffer uh, the consequences of of such a decision. And you must also understand uh, that the decision really had to be made in a matter of seconds. And what happened to Stanislav Petrov after this incident? Uh, Well, it's a mixed bag. At first, he was praised uh, by his immediate command, but then an even higher command called into question uh, the fact that the procedure was violated. So he was transferred to a less responsible post, moved to the side, and he retired in the 90s. I don't know if it's still called the Nuclear Command Center. If it is, I mean, is there still somebody waiting to press the red button? Uh, That's an interesting, actually, part, because just a few years later, such a situation would have been simply impossible. Because after the United States deployed this system with short flight time, the Soviet Union switched to a whole different system, in fact, that alerted the entire chain of command to the very top automatically. So we are speaking about former Soviet Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, who received the Dresden International Peace Prize yesterday for not alerting his superiors back in 1983 that there were uh, supposedly five U.S. nuclear warheads um, heading towards the Soviet Union. I'm wondering, do you believe that he deserved this award? 
it depends on how you assess the situation. As an officer, maybe not, but as a human being, yes. Nikolai Sokov is a senior fellow at the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Nonproliferation. We reached him in Vienna. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Katie Clark. Coming up, a newly found 1969 recording of Jimi Hendrix in London and why this expert says it's the find of the century. Hendrix wasn't a typical pop or rock musician. He was an improviser, so that if there are a hundred different recorded versions of Purple Haze, it's really worth listening to all a hundred versions because he does something different each time. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download tomorrow. I'm Katie Clark, in for Marco Warman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. When French troops arrived in Mali last month to drive al-Qaeda-linked militants out of the north, the militants seemed to fade away, but they left their mark. As they retreated from the ancient city of Timbuktu, they set fire to a center housing thousands of priceless manuscripts. Some were destroyed, but many others survived. Now, a man thought to be the last of his kind in Mali is on a mission to save the rest of Timbuktu's rich heritage. The CBC's Laura Lynch reports. He sits hunched over a simple table, a pen fashioned from bamboo in his hand, a modern master of an ancient craft. Bubakar Sadek is a calligrapher, thought to be the only one left in the country. He dips his pen into ink made from age-old ingredients, charcoal, powdered stone, and Arabic gum, and copies the delicate lettering from parchments that are centuries old. Sadek has carried out this painstaking work since he was a young man. My uncle was a master of calligraphy. It started to interest me. Each time I tried it, I loved it more and more. I wanted to have a calligraphy workshop of my own. There was a time when calligraphers were held in the highest regard. That was back in the 15th and 16th centuries, when Timbuktu was a center of Islamic scholarship and culture. Many manuscripts covering subjects as diverse as medicine, astronomy, literature, law, and, of course, religion, were brought to the city in camel caravans by scholars from faraway places like Persia and Baghdad. But Timbuktu began a long decline when Morocco invaded in 1591. The manuscripts survived that, but Boubacar Sadek was worried they wouldn't survive when the jihadist invaders showed up last year. In Timbuktu, we had never known a situation like this. War. We only saw it on television, in other countries. Everyone panicked. The people started to leave. So I brought everything to Bamako. He packed up delicate and crumbling manuscripts that had been in his family for hundreds of years, prompted by what he saw the militants doing. Because they would destroy people's business, anything they wanted to. People were scared, so they started to leave. 
Sadek wasn't the only one to go to extraordinary lengths to protect Timbuktu's trove of manuscripts. Others hid them away in caves or spirited them out of the city. Now Sadek practices his craft in a makeshift studio that sits beside a field strewn with garbage in Bamako. He revels in the exacting nature of his task, describing how he learned to use thread to mark margins and straight lines on paper made of rice. He's relieved to know most of the manuscripts in his hometown have survived, but he sees another threat. No one else in Mali knows how to do this anymore. He wants the government to get involved to help interest a new generation in this old and storied calling. I'm proud of my craft, and will continue with it. In the city of Timbuktu, these manuscripts are our rich legacy, the stories, the history, theology, geography. These are the treasures of Timbuktu. In his flowing robes and scarf, he turns once more to the frail papers laid out before him, recreating their elegance with each stroke of his pen. At this moment, Sadek seems a portrait of tranquility in a country still grappling with violence and war. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, Bamako, Mali. He's quite possibly Mali's last calligrapher, and you can see pictures of him at work at theworld.org. There's another set of papers in Mali that's getting a lot of attention. It's a nine-page document outlining the Islamist militant strategy for their takeover of northern Mali. It was left behind by the retreating militants under a pile of trash. It reads like a memo from a CEO to top management. Rukmini Kalamaki of the Associated Press found the document. She says she discovered the memo in a building in Timbuktu that had been used by the militants, a building she entered after French and Malian forces had searched it. We were in a very dark hallway going into one of the rooms, and we tripped over, literally tripped over, a pile of dirty clothes. Some of them were really quite gross. I think there was some liquid on them that looked like it could have been blood. So we um, we used a stick to move over the clothes, and underneath there was a ledger, and it was inside this ledger that we found this letter and some other documents. So who was this written by and what struck you most about it? The letter is from Abdel Malek Drukdal, who is the senior uh, commander, the senior leader of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. This is the al-Qaeda branch uh, that operates in Africa. What struck me about the document is how practical, how pragmatic he is in the advice that he gives his fighters. Uh, we might expect that al-Qaeda um, would, be, would be ideologically uh, very extreme, but in fact, he's telling them to make concessions on ideology uh, in order to win over the people of northern Mali uh, so that those people can be on their side if there's a military intervention uh, to dislodge them. He also predicted intervention in Mali by the West. And, of course, a French-led intervention to oust Islamist rebels did take place in January. Does this suggest to you that al-Qaeda is becoming perhaps more aware of what methods worked and haven't worked in the past? I think this document clearly shows that they're trying to learn from their mistakes. And the mistakes, I think, uh, was what happened in Iraq, where they turned a good portion of the population against them. Uh, We also saw in Somalia that they applied very brutal uh, Sharia law, and it backfired. You know, the people were no longer on their side. So one of the suggestions he makes, uh, is he tells them to go more slowly, to be more flexible, and to be more gentle in how they apply um, Sharia. 
he specifically criticizes them for having destroyed uh, Timbuktu's ancient shrines. It's interesting to me, having read excerpts anyway from this document, sort of the almost paternalistic tone that he takes with the members of al-Qaeda themselves. Sort of his public statements are very fiery rhetoric, but he speaks to them almost like a father speaking to children. He does, and he's critical of what they've done. The other piece of advice that I thought was very counterintuitive is he tells them to make alliances, even with groups that are secular and that don't necessarily um, share their ideals. He's specifically referring to um, a secular Tuareg rebel group called the NMLA. Uh, And the uh, the Tuareg group tried to make an alliance with the Islamists back last June, and it fell apart over the issue of Sharia. Uh, He's telling them that that was a mistake, that they should go back and try to mend their relationship uh, with these fighters. And I find that very surprising because the the, the Tuareg rebels, you know, these are people who drink. These are people who have girlfriends. They're, you know, bon vivant sort of people that don't necessarily line up very well with the Sharia interpretation of Islam that al-Qaeda usually espouses. Pretty interesting stuff. It's not too often that uh, these kinds of things are uncovered in this clear way. Yes, for sure. And I have to say, we almost walked right past it. It was really a mistake that we happened upon them. Rukmini Kalamaki, West Africa Bureau Chief of the Associated Press, speaking with us from Timbuktu. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Katie. The woman known as the mother of judo has died. Keiko Fukuda went against centuries of Japanese tradition to become the highest-ranking woman in judo history, ascending to the 10th-degree black belt. She died recently, just shy of her 100th birthday in her home in San Francisco. Yoriko Gamo-Romer is the director and producer of Mrs. Judo, Be Strong, Be Gentle, Be Beautiful, on the life of Fukuda. Here's a clip from the documentary. That's Fukuda herself describing how at the age of 21, she was invited by the founder of Judo, Jigoro Kanu, to join a women's division. Yuriko, what was it like in 1935 for a woman at that time to participate in a martial art? I think it was unusual because it was kind of just unheard of at that point. She was of a samurai class family, kind of an upper class family. And at that point, the preparation would have been the studying of traditional arts. So tea ceremony, the calligraphy, Mm. the shamisen, the instrument that she plays, flower arranging. These were the things that these young women were learning at that point in life. And I think back in the 1930s, they all wore kimono and you know, at a time when women were not allowed to show their legs. So you can imagine that the expectation that these women were completely covered up from feet all the way up to the neck. And suddenly they were introduced into this judo world where they were wearing these looser, sort of more informal judogi uniforms. And actually, if you look at the very old photographs, you will see that they bound up the bottoms of the pants Some sense of modesty there. Yes. So today, of course, they aren't like that. They just wear the the loose white pants. Did Keiko Fukuda kind of keep some of these traditional women's roles that she was raised to practice and perfect, sort of the, the, the calligraphy, as you say, and serving tea and arranging flowers? Did she keep doing that stuff into her later years? The calligraphy was something that she loved. She had Parkinson's, and so it became very difficult really the last couple years. Then she did do the flower arranging for a long time. And the other thing was that 
she was always very much a Japanese lady. You know, I think it was really important to her to keep the graces and the manners of being a Japanese woman. And she took that into the dojo, which I thought was really um, touching. And How so? What would she do? She was very adamant that her students take on, it's going to sound old-fashioned to say this, but ladylike manners and that they were proper it, it was something that was very important to her. And I think it shows in her students. I think that they're all very mannered and poised and disciplined and in a nice, womanly way. <laughs> was there any opposition by other men, though, for her kind of gaining such notoriety in this? And, you know, did she encounter any discrimination? The discrimination came up. And later on, as women began to think about competing, that's when I think the real prejudices came out, because suddenly it wasn't about women practicing in their own little world, but about women coming out and competing, which meant fighting, you know, out in public. And I think that was where some of the prejudices really started. In your film, there's a very poignant scene where Fukuda breaks down um, because she says she chose judo over marriage. I guess that kind of shows what it was like at that time. I mean, I'm wondering, were the demands really that great? Why did it have to be marriage or judo for her? Well, the way she describes it is that the judo classes that were available for women were approximately six o'clock in the evening. And if you were a wife, you were expected to be at home preparing dinner and welcoming the husband home. So if you wanted to practice judo, you would not be home at the time when you were most needed and expected to be. Prime family time, yes. Yeah. That was sort of the number one reason that was stated. There's another woman who makes a statement, and she also talks about how she had discussions with suitors. And her take on it is that, Men just hated the fact that women would be doing this. So I think that played into it. So the sort of the sport became her life or was her life. How how long did uh, Keiko Fukuda coach? She continued to coach until just a couple weeks ago. Hmm. 70-some years she she coached. Well, it's an incredible story, and I, I appreciate you talking with us about her. Yoriko Gamo-Romer is the director and producer of Mrs. Judo, Be Strong, Be Gentle, Be Beautiful, on the life of the late Keiko Fukuda. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I really feel honored and privileged to have known her and to have just absorbed that energy that she gives off. It's really inspiring. A quick update now on a story we reported last week. It was about the Kentucky-based whiskey distiller Maker's Mark. The company announced it was going to dilute the alcohol content of its popular bourbon by 3%. It was a move to keep up with unanticipated global demand. Well, that didn't go down so well with customers. Thousands of whiskey drinkers voiced their complaints. They said they'd rather deal with the occasional supply shortage than have their bourbon diluted. Wow, those are some serious bourbonites. And now Maker's Mark has reversed its decision. Some can't help but wonder if this whole thing wasn't planned by the company. Maker's Mark denies any such marketing ploy. But did sales spike when the company announced a weaker whiskey would be hitting the shelves soon? The jury's still out on that. What we do know is this. One of our own staff members, we're not naming names here, was among those who rushed out to buy what he thought was the last of Maker's Mark's strongest bourbon. 
Time magazine says it all amounts to either one of the greatest marketing blunders in history or an unlikely stroke of corporate genius. Whatever it was, the lesson here seems straightforward. Don't mess with bourbon drinkers. This is PRI. I'm Katie Clark. This is The World. Here in our newsroom, we're often reading about the latest archaeological discoveries. The latest, the so-called Temple of Fire in Peru, is said to date back some 5,000 years. But it's an artifact of a much more recent vintage, the 1960s to be exact, that has us all here talking. I bet we're not alone in that fascination. The world's Clark Boyd has the story. This is a story about a rock legend from Seattle, a literature professor from Massachusetts, and a concert recording from London. To start, let's go back exactly 44 years to February 18, 1969. And the Jimi Hendrix experience, well, it's one of the biggest rock acts around. Hendrix himself is living in London in 1969. Now, you might be asking, how did one of America's great rock musicians end up there? Well, back in 66, Hendrix was in the States, making his way as the guitarist for acts like the Isley Brothers. But Hendrix was also doing gigs with his own bands. At a show in New York City, Chaz Chandler, bassist for the British group The Animals, heard Hendrix play. Chaz Chandler wanted to get out of playing and into management, and when he heard Hendrix in a little club in Greenwich Village, he thought, I think I've found the person I want to manage. Joel Bratton has written extensively on Hendrix. He says Chaz Chandler knew just what to do with the young guitarist. He brought Hendrix back to England, formed the Jimi Hendrix experience with two British guys on bass and drums and, uh, you know, started recording and playing clubs and, and gigs in England. Hendrix's British girlfriend at the time, Kathy Etchingham, remembers how Brits reacted to his first gigs in London. Everyone's eyes were glued to him. I mean, he looked different. His guitar playing was superb. People in England hadn't seen anything like it before. It was quite... Out of this world. British rock greats like Eric Clapton, Stones, The Beatles. Suddenly they all wanted to jam with Hendrix. The experience spent some months touring around Britain and Europe. The band released its first album, Are You Experienced, overseas. And then came the famous performance at the Monterey Pop Festival in California in June of 67. That's when Americans finally discovered what Jimi Hendrix was all about. Of course, setting a guitar on fire and smashing it does make an impression. But it was his near-miraculous playing that really wowed people. And the next few years were devoted to almost constant touring, recording, working. Joel Bratton says Hendrix's work ethic was extraordinary. He would put hours and hours in on the studio, then play a gig or maybe two shows at night. When he was done with that, what would he want to do? Well find somebody in jam. And many, many of those recordings are documented. Joel Bratton has made it his life's work, well, part of his life's work, to parse out this wealth of Hendrix material. 
I say part of his life's work because Bratton's also an expert on Charles Dickens. He teaches early 19th century literature at Worcester Polytechnic Institute here in Massachusetts. But he's convinced that Hendrix is just as worthy of study as Dickens. Hendrix wasn't a typical pop or rock musician. He was an improviser so that... uh, if there are a hundred different recorded versions of Purple Haze, it's really worth listening to all a hundred versions because he does something different each time. And that brings us back to February 18, 1969. Forty-four years ago, the Jimi Hendrix experience was gearing up to play the first of two gigs in London's famous Royal Albert Hall. The second show, the one on February 24th, was pretty well recorded and documented. But not so the February 18th show. Bratton hands me a very marginal bootleg recording made by someone in the audience that night. Hendrix's Hear My Train at Common sounds, well, like this. It's a song that I think was very close to Jimi Hendrix's heart. It's also just a, a lovely, beautiful composition with a, a great range showing Hendrix's expressiveness, his tenderness, his passion. But little of that comes through in the bootleg recording. So imagine Bratton's surprise when he recently got a note from the editor of Univibes, a magazine devoted to all things Hendrix. The editor asked Bratton if he wanted to review the soundboard recording from Hendrix's February 18, 1969 show. That meant audio taken directly from the mixing board used during the performance. Bratton said yes, and a while later, while teaching a Dickens course in London he received the CDs. Suddenly, Hear My Train A-Comin' sounded like this. Here, Bratton says, you get to hear the real Hendrix at an interesting point in time. This is one of the last recorded shows he played with the experience in Britain. By June of 1969, the band would break up and go their separate ways. And by September of the following year... Hendrix would be dead in London at the age of 27. I do think this is the concert tape find of the century. Uh, of course, the century's not that old now, but uh, it's the most exciting live concert tape discovery for decades. Bratton played most of the soundboard recording for me recently, but because of worries over the legal rights to it, he would only give me less than a minute to illustrate this piece. Still, Bratton points out, it's enough to get a sense of Hendrix's exquisite fretwork. I asked Bratton, who made the recording? Where was it all these years? Who might have found it? Who could have been hiding it? He wouldn't answer any of these questions on the record. It might get weird, he said. Hendrix's estate is pretty strict about the release of recordings such as these. Still, Bratton hopes that one day, the soundboard recording for the February 18, 1969 show in Royal Albert Hall will be released to a wider audience. The demand, he says, will always be there for it. It is kind of incredible that uh, he died more than 40 years ago, and he still tops readers' polls all over the world, uh, number one guitarist, most influential guitarist, and so on. Oh, and a footnote that Bratton wanted me to point out. After the February 18th gig, Jimi Hendrix went back to his London apartment and jammed on a 12-string acoustic guitar. True to form, a video camera was rolling, so here's Hendrix that night doing Hound Dog. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. 
Hendrix playing Hound Dog. We've got the video at theworld.org. And that does it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Katie Clark. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.